Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for giving us a listen today. Extra thanks if you subscribe. This is episode number 16 of The Next Track, which is brought to you by Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes. Visit DougScripts.com and check out the updated tools for the upcoming release of iTunes 12.5 and Mac OS 10 12 Sierra. This week we'll be having an overview discussion on managing and storing digital media files. But before we get to that, Kirk has a couple of items that uh, may be of interest. Yeah, Rudy Van Gelder, the recording engineer who I mentioned in a recent episode, he recorded the Gary Davis album, which was one of my next track selections, died last week, age 91. Rudy Van Gelder recorded a number of famous albums like Cannonball Adderley, Something Else, Sonny Rollins' Saxophone Colossus, Miles Davis's early albums like Bags Groove and the Walkin', Cookin', Relaxin', Steamin' albums on Prestige, as well as that Gary Davis album that he recorded, I believe, in 1960. He was one of the great recording engineers who shaped the sound of jazz in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, he had an extraordinary career. He recorded Coltrane's A Love Supreme. He recorded Thelonious Monk. So one of the key figures in the sound of the jazz music that we know. He got uh, famous doing stuff for Blue Note in the early 50s. And yeah. from there, his uh, his fame spread. Um, well, he did do prestige stuff, the Miles Davis. So I haven't looked into his entire career, but he's a name. You hear his name all the time about engineering. And this was back in the day, you remember they were recording in mono, and they had, it was all about mic placement, the way the recordings were done. So if you listen to the Miles Davis mono recordings that, that Columbia recently remastered, you can hear the sound and the musician's sound, even on a single speaker, like they're in the room. The, the mic placement is essential to get the distances you know, think you're in a jazz club, and you've got the soloist in the front, and the drummer in the back, and the pianist on the side. But when they're recorded in the studio, it's not recorded like just with two microphones in front or one microphone in front. It's recorded with each one and then it's mixed to get the volumes appropriate. And, and that's a technique that was really essential when they were recording to mono like that. The other amazing thing, too, is that uh, they recorded all this live. They, it was mixed live while it was being recorded to tape. That would never happen these days. Everything would be done in post-production. And I'm a big fan of these old mono recordings because when they are well recorded, they come alive. They're much better than what you think of, you know, a flat mono recording. So the other news was an interesting article I spotted in Pitchfork. It is entitled Music Technology of the 1970s, A Timeline. And man, this brings back memories. You know, I don't have the stats on this, but it seems to me the 70s were a period of unbridled album production and technological development, at least as far as music went. It hadn't occurred to me until I realized that when I, I pick our next track at the end of each episode, I have to fight the urge to select something from the 70s. Uh, there was just so much recorded. The, the article mentions, the, the first thing it mentions is 24-track recording, which came in the 1970s. The Beatles recorded Revolver on a four-track machine, and a lot of what they did back then was they'd record four tracks and then fold them down to a single track. Remember, they were recording in mono. So each time you do that, you get a little bit of loss in fidelity. So it is amazing that we do have such good stuff. And, and one of the anecdotes that I remember that's not mentioned here is when the Grateful Dead did their Europe 72 tour in the spring and summer of 72, they brought with them a portable 16-track, I believe it was an Ampex recording system. Now, this wasn't portable as in you can carry it. It was portable as you can fit it on the bus. Yeah, if you had four guys in a bus, it was portable. Right. And so they recorded the entire tour, the, the 22 or 23 concerts in 16-track. 
and they paid for the cost of the tour by releasing a triple LP, which was taken from these tapes. But this was like the first 16-track portable recording studio that ever existed. Now, the Grateful Dead were on the forefront of recording technology, but also playback technology. And later, this article mentions what they call large-scale live sound. They mentioned a February 2, 1970 Grateful Dead show where Owsley Stanley had set up this massive sound system with Bob Heil, which was just this massive, massive wall of sound, literally, of speakers, like 60 feet high, putting out like a million watts or some ridiculous amount of um, power. But that power made the sound extremely clear. Uh, you know, we grew up at the time, you said the 70s is what we talk about, it's because we were teenagers then. And we grew up at a time when all of a sudden this stuff was starting to get good. I remember Madison Square Garden really had good sound for concerts. And you wouldn't expect it in a cavernous arena like that, but it was really good. Oh, yeah. So there are some other interesting things here. I didn't know karaoke dated to 1971. Yeah, it was a very popular activity in Japan and in Southeast Asia in general for years before clubs and bars in the U.S. started having karaoke nights in the, in the 80s. Karaoke means empty orchestra. Yeah, it also means, oh, good, I don't have to pay a band tonight. I can buy one of these machines and let the crowd entertain themselves. You know, like disco, there was a lot of resentment from live musicians uh, towards karaoke. Here we see vocorders. Vocorder was a precursor to the talk box. And a vocorder was like a vocal synthesizer. It took voice input and output a synthesized sort of vocal sound. Wendy Carlos used it. Uh, Mike Oldfield used it on his Five Miles Out album. And, and you mentioned the talk box. That's what Frampton used. So they, they mentioned that in 1973. It was the same Bob Heil who worked on the Grateful Dead sound who invented this. They say that he built it for Joe Walsh in the early 70s and then gave a commercial version to Peter Frampton as a Christmas gift. And it's true that if anyone is linked to the talk box, it's Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton, sure. And Joe Walsh, as you mentioned, Rocky Mountain Way is classic sound. Jeff Beck was also a, a proponent of the talk box. But other things they talk about, they, they mentioned the Mellotron. And I always like the Mellotron. It's like the, the Mellotron is this sort of King Crimson, yes, you know, early Genesis type device. And so what it did is it actually played tape loops that were recorded with string sounds. And it was it was just cool. And, you know, really, the Mellotron was, was a very early sampler because yeah. it literally used recorded orchestral sounds. It used tape. Uh, in, in loops. It would just start a tape, run, a loop running through a tape head. And I, I guess there were as many tape heads as there were keys. Right. For each key, there was a separate loop with a different note looping. But I always liked that sound. It had a, I don't know, it had a faux orchestral sound that, that seemed to work in the music of that time. You know, think of the first King Crimson album that, that used that a lot. Moving on, we get things like wah-wah pedals, and actually all the pedals came at that time. The, the Mutron, I don't remember what that was. I do. Um, Mutron was a device, but it was also the name of the company that made them. Uh, they made guitar effects like flangers and phase shifters and octave generators and envelope filters and things like that. Dan Armstrong effects, I think they, they manufactured and sold. But then we get into, the, they mentioned a bunch of listening technologies. So component car stereos. And it's true that the mid-70s is when you started getting these car stereos and people would trick out their cars with a fancy, you know, 50 watt per channel thing and woofers and tweeters and still sounded like crap because you were listening inside a fishbowl. Yeah, but loud crap sounds better than anything played in mom's car. You know what I mean? Then we get the VCR and commercial digital recording, Yeah, which really started in 1977 
though the first digitally recorded pop album was Ry Cooter in 1979, Bop Till You Drop. You know, I was doing college radio when that album came out, and I remember anticipating its release because of it was recorded digitally, and I also remember not being that impressed with it. It was, Denon in Japan was doing recordings in 1971, and there were some classical recordings in the mid-70s that weren't released in the States. But then, of course, you know, digital is the norm now, except for these sort of nostalgic people who want to go back and record an analog. But that changed the way we listen to music, the way we record to music and the, and the quality of it. And it goes on in, you know, the drum machines, 1978. That, that was a big change, wasn't it? Yeah, the early drum machines, uh, they used synthetic sounds. They didn't use sample sounds, but they were used exclusively in the studio as a drum reference track, like a click track. And then they'd bring a drummer in later to it to record the, the real live drums. But I suspect that uh, after listening to a drum machine over and over again, a lot of musicians and producers said, hey, let's try to incorporate that sound. And of course, later, the Lindrum used actual sampled sounds as a rhythm machine. Yeah, well, also the sequencer, which is a little bit different from a drum machine. When you think of, you know, Donna Summer's I Feel Good with Giorgio Moroder's sequencers, that was uh, that was quite, yeah. And Tangerine Dream, who used sequencers in their own ways. And, and then you get to the end of the 70s, and here's the real revolution. It's the Sony Walkman. Well, it's fitting because this article starts off with these refrigerator-sized devices, and it ends with the handheld Walkman. And it really gives you an idea of, of how technology worked to, to make things smaller. Well, this also corresponds with the period of huge growth in small computers. So the miniaturization that was being used for computers was also being used in these devices. You know, the Apple, the first Apple computer was 1976. So we've already got people using microprocessors and computers that they're soldering together, you know, homemade computers. And, and then you come up with something like the Roland MC8 microcomposer in 1978, which was basically a computer that could play music using, let's see, an Intel 8080A 8-bit microprocessor. So it was, this was hand in hand with the computer revolution. And I guess it's no surprise now that when we look back on it and we see just, for example, Apple, that music technology has always been on a parallel line with that of computer technology. Geeks with guitars. In fact, the reason I'm into computing at all is because I needed a way to manage synthesizer sound. So I bought a cheap Commodore 64 and uh, learned how to program it and, and wrote database software for synthesizer patches. So musician meets technology. Since our podcast discusses the way people listen to music today, it's interesting to look at the way people listen to music yesterday and how it's changed over time. You know, back in the day, we had these um, shelves covered with LPs and you could fit 100 LPs on a shelf. And now, you know, you've got all these digital audio files on your computer. And instead of shelves for storage, we've now got hard drives, which will bring us to our main topic in just a minute. Things may look kind of quiet at Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes at this time of year, and that's because I'm getting things ready for Apple's updated operating system and update to iTunes, both of which are expected to be released in about a month or so. As many of you know, I'm Doug, the Doug part of Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes. And in fact, many of the most popular tools available at DougScripts.com have already been updated. Now I'm talking about things like the very handy this tag, that tag that lets you manipulate iTunes track tags, multi-item edit that shows all available tags in a single get info type editing window search replace tag text that lets you search for and then replace tag text 
those are just three of the more than 400 tools for iTunes on the Mac available at DougScripts.com. And that's not to mention the veritable Dupin, the iTunes Duplicates Manager, joined together, which creates a single audio file for many, and M3 Unify to assist with exporting audio files and making M3U playlists. So when you update the OS and you update to the newest iTunes, make sure you visit Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes and update your tools. iTunes Apple Scripts to go at DougScripts.com. Yeah, today we wanted to talk about all those digital media files, which are in some way an abstraction of all those LPs and cassette tapes and CDs that we've had on our shelves. The difference is they don't take up any space. At least they don't take up any physical space. They take up a lot of virtual space. And let's look at the first iPod. It held a thousand songs in your pocket. Now this was calculated on the basis of 128 kilobit per second MP3 files. It was what a five gigabyte small hard drive in the device. Now, I would guess most of our listeners don't use 128K files. They're either using 256 or 320 or lossless or high resolution. So these files take up a lot more space on a disk. Before the show, I was looking at my iTunes library and I have about, about 900 gigabytes of music files. So this is what, 70 odd thousand tracks, less than a terabyte in music. A lot of this is lossless, most of it's 256, and some of it's lower. Now, you'll allow that that is a larger-than-average collection of media files, right? Yeah. I was talking to someone at Apple a couple months ago, and I asked the question, since they have all this information that they get from people's libraries, what's the average size library? And it's about two, 3,000 tracks. And that's what I had always assumed. Yeah, most people don't have that many. You know, you've got the bell curve, and at the bottom end, people have six tracks, and at the top end, they have 100,000. But the peak of the bell curve is around the two to 3,000 mark, which could explain why that Apple took so long to increase the number of tracks you can use with iTunes Match and iCloud Music Library. For a long time, it was 25,000, which was way up on the bell curve, maybe, you know, up to 98%. But the more vocal users who have 50, 60, 80, 100, even 200,000 tracks were the ones that made a lot of noise about it. Yeah. And, you know, iTunes has been around for 15 years and Apple has been encouraging us to use iTunes exclusively for our media management. So in 15 years, I've ripped and purchased uh, a lot of stuff. So in 15 years, your library, boom. So you've got these digital files and they take up space on your hard drive. And this leads to a number of questions. Where do you put them? My iMac has a 256 gigabyte SSD, and that's more than enough for me to run my operating system, to have my work documents, my personal documents, my photo library, and all that. In fact, I'm looking now, there's 105 gigabytes available. So I've got plenty of room, but of course my music is not on the hard drive. If you've got a computer that has a large hard drive internal, you can put your music on it, but if not, and I've been doing this for years, I've put my music on an external drive. Mine is connected by Thunderbolt. You can connect by USB 3 or even Firewire if you have a computer that uses that. If you're playing music or even if you're playing videos from an external drive to your computer, even USB 2, well, for video, it wouldn't be enough for HD video. USB 2 is enough for music and SD video, but you'd need USB 3 or Thunderbolt or something in order to do HD 1080p video. I still use some Firewire drives. I don't have a problem with media at all using those. Yeah. You know, as an aside, we just keep changing these connection methods, right? From back in the day, what was it, serial ports and then USB and Firewire and Thunderbolt. Now USB 3 is as good as Thunderbolt, so. Progress. 
If you don't have a large library, you can store your music locally. You know, I've got 100 gigs available, and for the average 3,000-track library, that would fit with no problem. Of course, if you have a 3,000-track library, I don't think you're listening to this show. <laughs> Even so, most modern computers come with pretty large hard drives. I believe that the iMac, you can get, like, up to a 3-terabyte Fusion drive. But I'm a stickler for noise in my home office. I don't want anything spinning in my computer. I am just so happy that we've gotten to the point of silence. And my external drives are off to the side about eight feet away from my computer with a very long USB 3 cable and a very long Thunderbolt cable. So I don't have to hear them. So I don't want a physical hard drive. Yeah, I keep hard drives down closer to the floor and out of the way. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even want to see them. And if your main computer is a laptop, then you don't have these options because you might be able to get a terabyte drive in a laptop these days, but I think mostly they're going to SSDs. And just from a computing point of view, go for the SSD. It's faster. It's so much faster. So you can store your files locally if you don't have a lot. Now, our, our topic here is about managing and storing digital media files, not just digital audio files. And there's the rub, as they say. So if I look in my iTunes library, the music, as I said, is just under 900 gigabytes. But I have 275 gigabytes of movies, 450 of TV shows. And that's only iTunes stuff because I keep my videos in Plex and I have a terabyte of videos. And your Plex stuff is on a separate server, if I recall, isn't that right? Yeah, so that's three terabytes of media files and with more being added as time goes on. Now, you may have a fairly large internal drive in your computer, but you may want to put some of your media files from your iTunes library on an external drive. And there's a great app for that called TuneSpan you can choose which files go onto the external drive. So for example, your music files may be just fine on the internal drive, but you may need to put your video files on an external. I believe TuneSpan's $15 and it's a, an extremely useful tool for those with large iTunes libraries. So you have a lot of options for storing this stuff. You could put them on external drives, as I mentioned. You could put them on network devices. Now, network devices are very interesting because you can put them in a different room you may want to connect a drive to a server. In that case, it's not technically a network device, but you can have a standalone network attached server or a NAS, which allows you to store not just your media files, but all kinds of files. A NAS device can be really good for many things. You can use it as a file repository. You can use it to do time machine backups if you have a Mac. There are plenty of brands that do this. Drobo is one, Western Digital. I have a Western Digital MyCloud which is a small two-drive device. The Drobo comes, I think most Drobos are five drives, but they have some smaller ones as well. Synology is another brand. There, there are a number of brands, and there are two types of NAS devices. Some of them are just single drives. So you can get a WD MyCloud, which is one drive, and it costs maybe a hundred bucks or a little bit more than that. You can also get what's called a RAID device. RAID stands for Redundant Array of Independent Disks, R-A-I-D. Now, a network-attached storage device is just any hard drive on a network. It has to be accessible over the network, and usually they have some sort of simple Linux operating system, and you configure it through a web browser, and it's got a million settings, and it's a hassle because you have to keep figuring out how to tweak the settings to get it to work. What a RAID does is gives you multiple disks and you can use them for several purposes. One of them is for redundant storage. 
So there's one kind of RAID where, let's say, you have two disks and everything you write to the disk gets duplicated. So basically, it's serving as a sort of a backup. There are other RAID devices where you combine the disks and they appear as one large disk. Now, the Drobo devices, the, the ones that have five drives, they work in a way that if one of your drives goes bad, you pull it out and you swap it, and the device rebuilds the RAID with all your data. So somehow the data is stored in a way that it's spread across all the drives. And if any one drive goes bad, you save your data. If two drives go bad, that's a little bit different. I've never been comfortable with that idea. It just seems to me a little bit too complicated conceptually for me. What do you mean? You mean the RAID in general? The RAID as pull out a drive and put it back and it rebuilds. The, the RAID as your disk is duplicated, that's a safety thing and, and that makes sense. Um, there's another type of RAID, I believe it's called striped RAID, where your data is stored alternately on two drives so it makes it faster. And that's not something you need for this kind of file. That's if you're in like a server environment. I've always preferred to just use what's called JBOD mode, just another bunch of disks. And for instance, I have a couple of two disk devices, my Thunderbolt devices, and each one has two four terabyte disks. And one is music and the second is music backup. And the other is other files and the other one's other files backup. So I've got this redundancy, but the backups occur automatically using software at a given time of day rather than while the files are being written. Now that accounts for two backups, but you back them up a third time too, right? Right, exactly. This is kind of essential because if you think about... If you've purchased files from the iTunes store, you can re-download them, most of them. Some of them might not be on the store, but most of them. If you purchased files from some other websites, you might not be able to re-download them. And if you've ripped CDs, and I have ripped thousands of CDs, and you've spent time tagging them and using Doug's Apple scripts to tweak the tag and adding album art, you may still have the CDs, but think how long it would take to re-rip all those CDs. You know, look at a box set of 100 CDs that you bought and remember how much time it took to rip them and think if you really want to do that again, or do you want to just get another couple of hard drives and back up the backup to make sure that doesn't happen? I lost files once 15 years ago, something I'd been working on all day. And, you know, since then, I've just realized that you just simply have to have backups and backups. Yeah, it only takes one time, that one time to lose something valuable. So, And if you consider that you can get a four terabyte drive for... I'm thinking $150 these days, an internal drive. I mean, in an enclosure, maybe $200. It's a small price to pay when you've invested a lot of time and money into your media collection. And, and ripping CDs is one thing, but ripping Blu-rays and DVDs, you know, if you do that, it is time consuming as well. So it just makes sense to me to have backups of backups of backups. Yep. Now, this is relatively simple because uh, you can use software. I use Carbon Copy Cloner on my Mac. Uh, there are plenty of other apps. And, and Doug, you use your own homemade script, don't you? Yeah, I use a combination of tools already available on the operating system. I use Time Machine, of course, but I also use LaunchD, which is the successor to Cron, to schedule the running of some rsync scripts. And rsync is a command line tool that can sync files between locations, and it's got a lot of options to accommodate various situations. But essentially, I make additional backups of my main production volume and my iTunes media folder. So I've got two sets each of those, plus the Time Machine backup. Yeah, it, it can be a bit fastidious to set this up initially, but once you've got it up and running, right. it's not too much of a problem. Now, one thing that I've always been leery about is how long hard drives are going to last. And, and I always think that the principle is it's not if a hard drive is going to fail, it's when it's going to fail. So I generally try to replace my hard drives every couple of years. 
And the advantage to this is, I mean, when I moved, I pulled out a bunch of old 1.5 terabyte hard drives that were sitting on a shelf, and now I'm using four terabyte hard drives. Right now, we've got five and six terabyte hard drives that are affordable. There are eight terabyte hard drives that aren't quite affordable yet. And I'm actually planning to upgrade a bunch of my hard drives to six terabyte drives very soon, because it's been well over two years, I think, since I bought these four terabyte drives. So that's another thing to think of. Again, if your media collection is valuable, and this could also be your photo and home video collection or any other files you have, it's really important to back them up. Aside from that, managing digital media files isn't really that complicated. If you use iTunes, it puts the files in the right place. You just need to let iTunes do its thing and make sure that the iTunes media folder is on a drive that's big enough. So to sum up, don't worry too much about your files. Just make sure that they're organized in a way that you can back them up maybe twice, maybe even a third time using an online backup service if you're really paranoid. I was doing this in my previous house, but my upstream bandwidth is too low, so I can't do it anymore. Right. The online storage solution isn't for everybody if uh, your upload speed makes it prohibitive. Yeah. And I, and I think when I started, I was using Backblaze, and I believe it took two months to get all of the stuff I wanted to back up up on the server. So this was my iTunes music, but not my videos. And this was a bunch of you know other files like work archives and photos and things like that. And this was at, at a 10 megabit upload. Um, so it can take a long time to seed it, but once you've done that, it automatically uploads anything that's changed. So if there's one tip that I would give to anyone is if you're using iTunes or if you're using any other app, let that app manage your files. Don't think that you need to move the files around and label the folders and all that. iTunes and, and all these other apps, they're like a database and they display the names of the files and they're designed so you don't have to hassle with the files. Now, both of us, we hear from people who have been using computers for a long time, and it's like, I don't want iTunes to control my files. It's like, dude, they're not controlling anything. They're making life easier. Yeah, as you mentioned, there may be special cases here and there, but for the most part, you can really ignore the files in the iTunes media folder. And if you need to access the files, you can drag and drop them out of iTunes. So, I mean, there really isn't any, any need to even bother with the files in the iTunes media folder. And frankly, messing with those files could upset iTunes, and it is the source of a lot of problems for people. So ignore the files and use iTunes. It's, it's a file manager. And I think the people who do this are people who were used to using other MP3 players than iOS devices onto which they had to drag folders. So they would want a folder for every artist and a folder for every album. And when they were choosing the music that they would sync or copy to their device, they would have to do it manually. Since you don't need to do this with iTunes, it's best to just let iTunes manage everything. And before we wrap, let's pick our next tracks. I want to remind you that this episode of The Next Track has been brought to you by Doug's Apple Scripts for iTunes, dougscripts.com. Visit soon and update your tagging and music management tools to be ready for Mac OS 10.12, Sierra, and iTunes 12.5. Kirk, what have you got queued up? My next track is a song called Children on the Hill by Harold Budd. Now, technically, it's a song, but it's a track. It's a, it's a solo piano piece. I first heard this in 1980 on a sampler from the Belgian record label Les Disques du Crépuscule. And this was sort of like the equivalent of Factory Records in Brussels. They published some of the same musicians. And in fact, this sampler, which was on a cassette when I had it, had music by the Derudy Calm and John Fox, Michael Nyman and Gavin Bryars. The sort of early alternative post-punk or, you know, Michael Nyman and Gavin Breyer's sort of post-minimalist music. 
But Children on the Hill, I believe it's, a, it's like a six minute long track. And it's just this wonderfully beautiful ambient piano piece that has this cloying memory. And I liked this so much that I bought, do you remember you could buy cassettes that actually were tape loops, like four minutes or six minutes? And I put this on a tape loop and I would listen to it over and over. And there was about maybe a minute or so of silence at the end. And I, I played this on repeat for a very long time. It's one of my favorite pieces of music ever. You can get this track today either on the CD version of this sampler, which is called From Brussels With Love, or on Harold Budd's album, The Serpent in Quicksilver. And you can buy the track alone on the iTunes store and all that. I will link to a recording that's available on the internet from a 1982 concert where Harold Budd improvised on this for 23 minutes, which is simply extraordinary. It's just a beautiful performance. It's just one of those wonderfully beautiful ambient tracks that makes you realize that the world is a much better place than you thought after you've listened to it. So, Doug, what's your next track? My next track is a bit of Britpop. It's the album Social Dancing from the band Bis. Now, I'll bet that that may elicit a groan from some listeners. But in my defense, this album, which I think is delightful, was produced by Andy Gill, founder and guitarist for Gang of Four. So you can see how one's curiosity might be piqued by learning a fact like that. So this record has, of course, catchy hooks and clever lyrics and vocal arrangements, but it isn't over-the-top pop. It isn't goofy, you know what I mean? And I really suspect that Andy Gill had a hand in keeping each song interesting with quirky arrangements and funky syncopation and very cool sounds when required. I think this album produced a couple of singles, probably doing better in the UK and elsewhere than in, in the US. But the album came out as the band was getting a lot of attention from having recorded the theme to the American kids show, The Powerpuff Girls, which is how I first found out about the band, thanks to my daughter who was Powerpuff Girl crazy at the time. Biss released a couple of things after this album and then kind of called it quits, and this is pretty much their peak. Biss is the name of the band and their album Social Dancing is my next track. This has been The Next Track a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.